Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute studio in Boston with our weekly episode of Quick Takes on the industry news that you might just want to pay attention to. Joined uh, by Rob Gonzalez, who's here in our studio. Hello. And Justin, you are in Baltimore. Yes, I am. But we call it Balmore here. Balmore. Peter. Well, he joins us from Baltimore. And everyone in Baltimore, in Boston, and everywhere else heard the news this week that Nike has stopped selling directly on Amazon. There should be some sort of sound effect happening here that, wait. <laughs> See, they've stopped selling directly on Amazon. You might remember about two years ago, they started a pilot program. Uh, and now they've pulled the plug. Uh, the, the, the big picture is reported by Morning Brew says brands the size of Nike have said Amazon doesn't work hard enough to wipe out its flourishing community of counterfeit sellers. That and Amazon's strict price control can devalue outside brands products. Reaction. Yeah, this is, this is just replaying the reasons that Nike wasn't on Amazon for a while before, with. right? Yeah. Um, there was, there was a ton of Nike counterfeit. People counterfeit Nike because it's a high-value, high-margin, high-price, visible, desirable brand. I mean, it's one of the top four recognizable brands on planet Earth, I believe. And so they were they were angry about the counterfeiting, and they were also, from as a premier brand, angry about Amazon's price-matching policies, where you know a, a local retailer might have a promotion uh, Nike footwear products, and Amazon would match the price and then keep it there destroying the value of the brand as a, as a high price, desirable brand that you save up for. Right. And I think both of those things, they, they talked with Amazon about it. I think they hadn't, they'd come to an agreement where Amazon would, would fight some of the fraud a little more directly. Amazon has uh, the project zero and they've invested a lot in the, um, in brand equity and counterfeiting and stuff like that. Project but zero, just to, for our listeners, just to be clear, is there an automated program that's actually scanning to take down and remove suspected counterfeits? Right? Yeah, not just automated. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds of people that are employed at Amazon HQ that are that are working on this problem. So the, Amazon's taking it seriously, but yeah. this, the issue is that there's just too much nefarious participation in the op open marketplace for, for them to manage effectively. And Nike's I, I think from a brand perspective, I think they're doing the right move for Nike. Like Nike, Nike kind of doesn't need Amazon. Everyone knows Nike. People want Nikes. They've got a great consumer relationship. They've got a great consumer brand. They can they can survive without Amazon. So I think for them, the the protecting the brand equity and protecting the brand value um, matters more than the incremental sales. Well, I think that the scale of the counterfeit stuff on Amazon. Uh, I was uh, reading from a journal article that the journal uh, had uncovered earlier this year, 10,870 items for sale between May and August that have been declared unsafe by federal agencies are deceptively labeled, lack federally required warnings, or are banned by federal regulators. A new product listing is uploaded to Amazon from China every 150th of a second. Every 150th of a second. 150th of a second. Wow. Uh, and then um, in their SEC filing, Amazon blocked more than 3 billion suspect listings in 2018. So even with a partner like Nike, where it was in their interest to make sure they at least had Nike footwear locked down and protected, it's, it's just an impossible mountain of stuff to fight against, it seems like. I mean, there's a real tension between allowing open 
and fast and self-service marketplace participation and also locking down the quality of the products that are in the system. You know, those are those two fundamental uh, approaches to the business are are in conflict, and it's just hard to see them solving the problem anytime soon. So if if you're a brand like Nike and you've got a great consumer audience and you've got your own Nike stores and and you've got um, the the Nike running program that people subscribe to, I believe it's called Nike Plus, right, or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and you you know they've got great consumer relationships. Go on your own, and I, I think other brands could learn a lot from this. It's hard to become a Nike, but the more that you own your consumer relationship and the more that you've got shopper loyalty, the easier it is for you to play hardball in this way. I know like others like Keurig have done it before and, and one because Keurig also has that type of that brand position of brand equity and and brand loyalty from its purchasers. And they've got other channels they can sell through that are, that, that can make up the volume. Yeah. And I think Nike's doing not only leaving Amazon, but they are being much more choosy about where they decide to sell. In 2017, Nike did business with 30,000 retailers, according to Morning Brew. In the future, it'll limit itself to about 40 partners. That They're related um, in that when you're trying to control your brand on Amazon, you have to control your distribution channel. Yeah. So a lot of the weird stuff that happens on Amazon happens because, you know, you as a brand manufacturer, you're selling to a local retail chain or you're selling through a distribution group or you're selling however you're doing it. And they are listing the products to just unload them out of the warehouse and clear up space after some period of time. And they're listing them cheap and they might not be doing it with great imagery. They might not be doing it with great description. And so like, if your goal is to protect map and protect the brand, you have, you have to clean the channel. Um, and, and the only way to clean the channel and, and protect the brand is to cut down. Now 40 might be radical, but you know, if their goal is to really clean up Amazon, I it fe- feels roughly right. And Nike is again, Nike's a type of brand that can do this and survive it. Did you guys see the? Um, so there's an article in the Washington Post about Amazon that said um, how Amazon's quest for more cheaper products has resulted in a flea market of fakes. A pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty uh, harsh uh, title. I, I think what was kind of funny about that is the Washington Post, of course, is owned by Jeff Bezos, so he allows that type of um, headlines to come. It's the but Chinese I, wall I, between I mean, editorial I, and billionaire owner. That's tradition. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on the other side, like I haven't really bought fakes. Right. So I don't have a, I, I, I think through the review process and things like that, it, it does expose the the fakes that are out there. Is this, is this a, you, you see this as a giant problem on Amazon or just something that can be remediated through things like reviews? Well, it's funny you bring up reviews. Uh, one of my favorite review sites that I've been subscribing to and recommend is called review meta. And Review Meta has been using uh, machine learning and AI um, to figure out what are the reviews that are obviously solicited or actually not obviously solicited. The ones that look like they're robotic in some way, the ones that look like they're just the canned reviews that every smart Chinese seller or other seller it works to get up there by paying a reviewer and review groups and stuff like that. They're I think that the stat that I saw last month was that up to 75% of new reviews are not reviews from 
a shopper like mm-hmm. you or me. Mm-hmm. 75% of the reviews are re- of new reviews are reviews that are in some way pay to play. So I don't know if that mechanism is as effective as it was five years ago. People, again, because it's an open platform, people have just gotten insanely good at gaming it. Well, and these things are actually super connected because because of the counterfeit products, uh, the the counterfeit products are getting bad reviews, but they think they bought the actual product. And so people are going to the actual product page on Amazon and leaving these horrible reviews. And so they're getting dinged. And, uh, and so the actual original brand with high quality products is losing business that's affecting them not only on Amazon, but everywhere else people shop because Amazon reviews are so influential. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a bunch of the political candidates in the U.S. and in Europe are talking about legislation yeah. to help curb this challenge some way, shape, or form. But you know, fundamentally speaking, if you've got an open marketplace with millions and millions of participants, it's, some amount of this is just going to happen, yeah. right? Um, hmm. You know, you look at any large community anywhere on the Internet that's ever happened, whether it's Twitter or Facebook uh, the, the Amazon marketplace, dig back in the day, Reddit, whatever. There's just, there's a lot of mess and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of just humans being humans. When we so, think of the people that are listening to us now, you know, it's great to be a Nike. We all would love to be a Nike, but I think the vast majority of brands are somewhere in the middle where th- they focus on creating great products, you know, whether it's a, a duvet or whatever they might be manufacturing and work hard at that product, but aren't the, you know, that don't have the direct to consumer connection of a Nike. What do they do in this instance? How do they fight this? What is the, what is the answer? Rob, tell us. Oh, yeah, no, man, <laughs> this is hard. Uh, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, the we, we had that interview with uh, Sinesh from Bosch, yeah, and they work really, really hard to build out the direct relationships with yeah. their end buyers, both pros and amateurs. And that's a new program for Bosch that, that they weren't doing 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they had to manage their channel sales relationships as their primary customer. You know, Home Depot is the customer. Lowe's is the customer. Now... The, the verbiage is even changing, right? The customer is the, the pro that's on site that's using the drill. And I think any brand can take that mindset. You know, brands have got to go back to basics and building building trust and building loyalty. And a lot of the things that, that helped a lot of these majors become what they are today. You know, I, I remember growing, you know, growing, go back to the 80s, go with 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, brands like Tide would do the, the Tide Challenge and things like that to constantly talk about how good their product was and how much better it was than the competition and so on and so forth and get back to basics on, on doing that. Right. I think a a lot of the big brands have, have due to consolidation and owning just a lot of shelf space have, have sort of focused a lot more on scale optimization and, and focused a lot more on channel optimization versus you know, consumer brand loyalty. And if that all they need to do is make that shift. Yeah. But I think, yes, it's back to basics, but it's also because there are now so many channels through which you can and need to do that. It's a whole set of new uh, capabilities to be able to have that message be reaching your consumer across all those channels, as opposed to the tide challenge being on TV. Sure. But right? if you look at, if you look at us, let's look at this podcast, right? Yep. There's about a billion places that you can talk about a podcast and you could do it on Apple, 
and and you could optimize for Apple search and promotion there. You can do it on Twitter. You can do it on probably people are promoting podcasts and cross promoting on TikTok and other other of the new social medias these days. And we're not doing all of them. Right. You know, we're 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 focusing on LinkedIn, we're focusing on Apple, like we're just focusing on a couple different places to get the get the noise out. I think that that is the same type of approach. Like if you're Patagonia, you're not you're not you're big, but you're not that big. And you're not going to try to blanket the entire universe with a pro uh, environmental message and tie it to your brand. You're going to focus on specific channels where where your audience is most likely to engage. Um, so yet you can be everywhere, but you've got to focus your energy in specific places. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I do believe that that Nike is one of these examples, the sort of the growing power of marketplaces uh, is not just happening in the B2C world. It's really, it is very much happening in the B2B world. And I think, Justin, you're bringing some, uh, some uh, outside thought leadership to bear on sort of where, uh, where I think Forrester thinks uh, B2B commerce is going. Do you want to sort of lead us off? Yeah, there was a, there's a pretty interesting, it's like a five or six page um, white paper released by Joe Sisman and Alan Bundy from Forrester. Um, they call it the 2020 predictions for B2B e-commerce and marketplaces, which is interesting. I, yeah, we haven't seen a lot of that combination of what if e-commerce and marketplaces together. Um, so that was interesting. But the, the basic premise of this was that buyers, they do have a preference for marketplaces, right? Not consumers, but buyers have a preference for marketplaces because marketplaces are trying to remove this friction in the customer experience um, versus kind of the way we've always sold. Um, and so this is really about buyer preferences and change in buyer behavior versus how companies will actually respond to it, right? And so that's kind of my question as we go through this report is, how do companies respond to this, um, especially at their you know different levels of maturity? So here, here are the kind of main points. Um, number one was sellers will embrace digital product management or they'll fall behind. Number two, manufacturers, so sellers will be distributors, so manufacturers will double down on signing up new transactional, non-transactional partners. Number three is mega vendors will pivot away from acquired legacy platforms toward partnerships. Number four is headless commerce will become the de default. And number five is the rise of marketplaces will drive demand for tools and talent. And I think there's some interesting, there's some interesting points in there, but first of all, I love that Joe, Joe Sisman actually talks about e-business and I, and I want to reclaim this word so bad. Um, E-business, <laughs> e you know, it's a word from wow. seven, eight, yes. ten years ago, yeah, right? We don't see it anymore. Called and but Joe in the middle, back. Joe Sisman, like wiping <laughs> the dust off of that. That's awesome. He did. I, I like, we actually had a, we had, I, we got to take a little bit of credit this with Joe. I had, I had breakfast with him and I said, Joe, I want to reclaim the word e-business. And I think we had a good conversation. I don't know if that, if I led to that, but now tell me, but it was tell a, me why that really good. Yeah. Why does that matter? Why, do, why does that come out to you as something important to do? I, 
Because because in, in B2B, e-business is, is such a more broader term. Like e-commerce is kind of transactional, right? It's about the actual purchase. But e-business is, includes so many different things. It includes, you know, how we deal with our channels, our channel partners, how we deal with EDI, e-procurement, kind of that part of the business. And, of course, digital and e-commerce. And so e-business kind of wraps it all. I don't know if it's a good idea to resurrect um, old words, but I kind of like the idea of, of talking about e-business again um, from the early 2000s. Isn't it like a, a little bit bigoted towards B2B is just being behind? I mean, this feels like a 2005 <laughs> IBM commercial. <laughs> That's why I love it, Rob. That's why I love it. That's why I love it. We're going to resurrect something old and make it maybe make it fresh a, and new not again. so old. <laughs> so, um, so I, yeah, like when I, when I was looking at this, at this report, there were sort of um, three of the of the predictions that actually jumped out at me as being related, and I wanted to see what you guys thought about this. That that the idea of sellers embracing digital product management or fall behind, um, the 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 mega vendors uh, pivoting away from the acquired legacy platforms toward partnerships, and then the rise of marketplaces for tools and talent. It felt like sort of people, technology, almost, and process kind of boiled into those three things. Mm. And I, a, I wanted to see if those linkages make sense. And then I think it's worth digging into each one of those particularly because they're so related to the shift. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think the first one, sellers will embrace digital product management. I, I think what the idea of this is the, um, creating this role of digital product management that, um, that, that, that talks about how each channel will serve the buyers. Um, so, so digital product managers will actually um, even be per channel that's out there and they'll, and they'll monitor the customer's behavior to see how those customers are going to switch channels. So by channels, they mean, you know, what marketplaces um, they will enter into. I, 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 ha I, I understand this one. Uh, and I, and he's talking about sellers here. I, I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if it's not as much sellers cause I'm not seeing as much in the distributor side of this as I'm seeing on the manufacturing side where manufacturers are starting to say, okay, we have all these channels. We need people, a digital product manager to manage all these different channels, understand where customers going back to that point of building a brand, Rob, in, in building a brand in B2C of actually building a brand in B2B that we're actually interacting with our customers. We know what they're doing. Is this more of a manufacturing play than a seller play? Uh, and before Rob answers that really good question, I think it's important to Joe and Alan describe this role that they need to, that it will emerge through this as a hybrid of retail merchandiser, B2B sales rep and consumer packaged goods captain. And I think that actually is, is sort of what we're talking about here, which is for a while mm -hmm. now, CPG have had people who own Amazon, who own Walmart, who own Kroger, who, and, and they live, breathe, eat, get incented to drive success on those channels. And I think maybe that's a new, a new thing in the digital world for B2Bs. Well, the interesting thing about the CPGs though, is the, the, the team that owns Walmart typically sits in Bentonville. And a lot of them haven't seen that much turnover in the last five or six years. So it's a, it's a whole team and Oftentimes, they're still relying on corporate for digital imagery and stuff like that. And, and the DNA of the teams have been evolving, but slowly, the more interesting place, and this is where maybe the B2B industrial supply, electrical supply, HVAC, plumbing, all those guys can, can learn from, is 
on the CPG side, they started experimenting with this, like almost not intentionally 10 years ago by putting some 22 year old in charge of Amazon. Like, ah, you know, this Amazon thing, it's confusing. It's low volume. Fred, why don't you do this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wait, we'll give you an office and everything. And it's like in the basement and they give them some roach killer and, and you some know, five hour energy, <laughs> some five hour energy. <laughs> they, <laughs> and, and so he's, he's crushing Red Bulls and doing Amazon. And the thing about Amazon is it's, it requires you to have all of those capabilities in one person. You know, you're running the ads, you're, you're dealing with the, the inventory, you're dealing with the demand forecasting, you're doing all this sort of stuff. And because the volume was so low and the risk was so low, they sort of, they could experiment yeah. and they could build up those muscles. And over time, once the volume started getting higher category by category, you saw the CPGs then creating digital centers of excellence. This is, I mean, think 2000. 11, 12, 13, 14, everybody had some type of digital center of excellence that was that was uh, cross-departmental. And then as volumes keep going up, they say, well, you know, like executing on the digital shelf is a little bit differently. So let's get a chief digital officer, right? They're, they're not a chief marketing officer. Chief digital officer has all these other different types of skills and, and uh, spans of control. Like some of them actually own supply chain for e-commerce and whatnot. And then eventually you see everybody reverting slowly back to business as usual, but now all the different teams know how to do digital. Right. Um, so can, can B2B leapfrog this? I mean, is that part of what Joe and Alan are going to is trying to help them sort of fast forward that, that painful process of evolution? Probably. I mean, there, you know, did, how long did it take the Brits to go industrialize in the 17th and 18th centuries, right? A long time. And then how, how long did it take the Chinese in the 20th century? So I think you can, there's probably a lot they can learn. I mean, minimally, you can imagine if you're a larger manufacturer, you could hire somebody who knows how to do this stuff and put them in charge of the digital channels and you know, not have to test and learn every single thing that you do. But I think I think the le the overall pattern, though, is a similar pattern. The volume's going to be low. Uh, I think there's a stat that's like 14% of North American and EU industrial manufacturers have good digital capabilities as, as wow. Forrester measures them, you know, so it, it's, mm -hmm. you can, you can start small with just one person focusing on this stuff probably and make progress. So I think, I think the next one, the next one they talk about is mega vendors will pivot away from acquired legacy platforms towards partnerships. Um, and, the, and the main point of this in the article was that the cost to refactor all of these old platforms is significant, which it is right. And, and so moving, moving to eventually headless type technology is the, is the next point um, that the mega vendors will pursue. Again, this, this assumes, this assumes that there's a legacy platform in place, right? And that, and that they're actually seeing some level of success, which, which is why he targeted mega vendors, which is, which is absolutely true. I think, I think it's really only the giants that are out there that, that are, that have this type of technology to be able to move to something, um, you know, more, more advanced and modern, like, like headless that's out there. Yeah. Th this one feels to me the, the, the subtext here too, was it's costly to upgrade an on-prem legacy system. It requires a lot of money and time and also a certain type of technical talent. And, a lot of a lot of the folks, like if you're looking to to flip everything over pretty quickly, um, it was hard enough to get the thing stood up to begin with, and then you've got to basically re-implement, and then two or three years from now you got to re-implement again, and that's sort of the cadence of the on-prem systems. 
at, at some point, it's easier for most of these guys to stay relevant to go to the cloud. Well, and it goes right? back to the need for agility across this whole effort, right? You, the the on-prem stuff with so many customizations built in and and loaded over releases over time, it the the ability to be able to shift on a dime to take advantage mm. of an opportunity or respond to a competitor is really limited with these sort of legacy systems. And I think that ties into number four, the headless commerce will become the default because they need to achieve this level of sort of snap on agility to try new routes to market, to change pricing, et cetera, uh, on the fly. Uh, I'd like to call out Sisman for calling out headless commerce here. Two months after he wrote that LinkedIn blog post that that made fun <laughs> of him, the phrase headless commerce. Headless so, commerce is yeah. dead, but here we go. I think well, we I mean, should get be, Joe on the I, podcast and have him defend which is it, Joe? We we could have Joe, you know, version one Joe attack headless commerce and then version two Joe defend headless commerce. Joe, if you're listening, we want this debate. Come on. Well, look, I did, I did a workshop at B2B Next, uh, you know, about headless commerce. And the first thing I had to do was define what headless commerce was yeah. for, for the audience, yeah. right? Not for myself, for the audience, because nobody actually knew what it was. So how did you I, define I, it? I, I keep going back to what's that? Uh, let me put you on the spot. Like, how did you define it? Because I think there's a lot, certainly a lot of our listeners who who may not know what it actually means. I, I actually use the analogy. It's like, it's like having an ERP system without any screens. Um, like, you know, something that you have to, you, you have to build all the screens. Uh, the ERP has all the APIs and the microservices to be able to build the screens, but it's up to you to build the screens. That's, 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 that's one. It was, a, it was a loose analogy, but, but I think resonated, resonated pretty well. And that, that is the ability to be able to, um, build what's appropriate for your company using APIs and microservices um, versus versus having kind of these all-in-one bundled products um, and platforms. In, in broad strokes, the operational advantage to a lot of the headless systems for, for folks that are trying to understand this, this particular point is that um, traditionally you've got data that's mastered in several several different places. So if you're a, a B2B industrial su- supply manufacturer, you haven't typically, the ERP does the lion's share of the work. If you're larger and a little bit more digitally mature, you've got a, a product information management system, a PIM system. You may have a digital asset management system, although most of these guys don't. They just use the PIM or the ERP for that you know, or, or a shared file drive or something. And then you've got your website, which could be an e-commerce website, but often is just the WCMS. And so what ends up happening traditionally is you're kind of copying data from the from the ERP system to the PIM system, the PIM system to the e-commerce platform, but not every one of these systems can master every little bit of information. So if an uh, attribute on a product is searchable, that's configured in the e-commerce system, but it might be mastered in the PIM system and so on and so forth. So the, the headless systems just remove some of the mastery. So like the front end, the WCMS doesn't actually store any of the data. It's just pulling it live from APIs off of the, of, of the PIM, which is acting as like the headless server. And so it's just one less place to manage information. Um, that and, and just having one less place to manage information gives you agility Speeds because up. it's yeah. like fewer things can break and all that type of stuff. 
So I think, uh, you know, the first one talked about this need to start managing on, start managing the, the digitalness of these new channels and having a role in place that is uh, comped and focused on how those channels uh, are successful. We're talking about how do you change your systems to sort of move this thing up and faster and make it responsive to the needs of those channels. But then ultimately, probably in some ways, the hardest and the most important of these recommendations of these predictions are the rise of marketplaces will drive demand for tools and talent. At the end of the day, you need people that can come in and sort of be entrepreneurial inside of these, you know, more established businesses to be able to get this done, right? I think that's going to be hard too. That's that's what everyone's struggling with is that I remember being in a e-commerce advisory dinner in New York two years ago. And um, Cody was 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 there and, and uh, they, they had their chief digital officer. And one of the topics of conversation was on talent in particular. And uh, he brought up the point that the folks that are really good at digital are just more expensive. There's, there's fewer of them. It's a, just a straight supply and demand thing. So if you're paying them according to your standard corporate pay bands, you, so you can't afford the ones that actually have experience that are good. Mm-hmm. You have to make exception. And everybody in the room was talking about that. And I think a lot of them are, yeah. are often based in cities. They're not living out where the, well, the manufacturing uh, plant is. Is this an agency? The, other part, of this, the other part of this is, is that, you know, this is, these are not sexy businesses, right? right? They're not cool. And so if you're a good e-commerce person, good digital person, you're in a big agency or you're in a big or a cool brand, right? Getting someone just getting, even if you're paying them, they write them out, just getting someone to work for an industrial manufacturer or industrial supplier. It, it's not very cool and sexy. And so it's really difficult just to attract that talent, regardless of compensation. So ta- this talent side is, is very difficult. Yeah. I think the other part of this difficult in this is, is the marketplaces themselves. I mean, where are they? Right. So the marketplaces, I mean, you have Amazon, you have Alibaba, but you don't have a ton of, you don't have a ton of other marketplaces that are out there. And frankly, there's not the, the ones that are out there are primarily bootstrapped and not well capitalized right now. So I think, I think 2020 is going to be about the establishment of some of those marketplaces uh, as more startups than, than kind of established entities. Which just goes to point out even more that you need sort of agile, entrepreneurial, That's right. sort of startup-minded people to be able to, to to figure these new opportunities out. And that's why I'm wondering if if talent's the issue and the the uh, the segment ain't sexy and the the town where the manufacturing plant might be might not be the first place a lot of these people may or may not move. Uh, is it an agency play here? Like should should uh, brand manufacturers in the B2B space really be trying to find the right digital agencies to partner with on this? The right partners. Does that, does that work? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's, I think partners and distributors, I think there's small kind of nimble digital first or d- digital focused um, distributors and, and agencies that I think are great partnerships. And I think that's what the article kind of concluded as well as, as to, to, to establish those relationships and partners um, to be able to do this. So uh, that's Forrester telling all of us what to be thinking about in B2B commerce in 2020. Uh, I always love, we'll have to revisit these predictions uh, at the end of the year and see how Joe and Alan did. But uh, to me, they feel pretty, pretty spot on. Yeah. If the, if if I have any quibble on any of this, it's just the time span 
Yeah. You know, it's, it takes yeah. a decade to move an industry from one, one thing to another. So, you know, 20, I think if he said, if he said 20 to 20 to 2030, <laughs> that probably makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll this see. is probably the, this is the, this is the wake up call. This is the alarm bell ringing. Right. And then the question is, what are you guys listeners doing in your 2020 plans to, to move in these directions? And how are you thinking of this first phase? Absolutely. Great. All right. So that is our show for today. Any thoughts that you have on these trends that we're talking about, what's going on with Nike, what's happening? We'd love to hear about it. Please go to our Institute's LinkedIn page, tweet at us, uh, Win Digital Shelf. Uh, And of course, if this content is useful, we'd love it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. But most of all, thank you so much for being part of our community.